Welcome to Tiger Paw Radio, the podcast that tackles all the challenges and opportunities of channel convergence. If you provide managed IT, managed print, VoIP, security, or other technology-driven services for your customers, this podcast is for you. Tiger Paw Radio, exploring channel convergence, one stripe at a time. Well, hey, everybody, Wes McDonald here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of TigerTube. And if you can't see us, that means you're listening in on Tiger Paw Radio, and thank you very much for listening in. I'm uh, super excited with our guest today, Blair Dawson, who I'm going to let introduce herself in a moment. Uh, but I had the good fortune of actually seeing her speak on a panel, uh, which was uh, basically on cybersecurity and what happens after an incident occurs. And it was one of the most fascinating panels that I've seen. I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough are uh, what some of the legal uh, things are upfront uh, before something like that happens and especially afterwards. So without further ado, because I know nothing about uh, the law space, I'm going to let Blair uh, introduce herself. So Blair Dawson, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, my name is Blair Dawson. I happen to be a partner at McDonald Hopkins out of the Chicago office. I'm with their cybersecurity and data privacy group. Uh, one of my main focuses is with incident response, which was the focus of the panel that you uh, joined us on. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And it was nice to see uh, like a couple of real providers there as well. Uh, speaking to that, because I know that when you get that, you know, kind of real experience, uh, to understand what happened and the good news is that they did uh survive uh mm -hmm. what happened and and left their customers i think relatively unscathed right but you know maybe we can just ex explain a little bit uh what you actually do as it pertains specifically to helping providers you know after a reportable incident occurs and and you notice i'm being very careful with my language um about a reportable incident because and I'll, I'll let you take that away but uh, how do you help them <laughs> right right so if there's an incident um and we are using the, the our words carefully uh breach would mean a breach of data and in early days you just can't know that with any certainty and the overall rule is to not make any suppositions or guesses about what occurred that can really undermine your your credibility with your clients or even your employees and just the public at large with going to the services, um, we get a call from a client who's in crisis. They've had maybe a, a business email compromise that resulted in a wire transfer fraud or perhaps a ransom event. They're locked down. They can't operate. One of our primary goals is to en uh, envelop all the discussions and work product with any of the vendors that help with the investigation in a cloak of confidentiality and privilege. That means that any discussions that are had with the forensics team, we bring in an independent uh, forensic investigation team to take a look at the system, both from a containment and restoration perspective. If we need to do uh, negotiations with the threat actor, we'll also coordinate with them on strategy behind that. Uh, we'll also help clients with communications. Every business wants to keep their relationship and their trust with their clients, their customers, if it's a governmental entity with their residents. So our primary goal is to be as transparent as we can to foster that credibility and that trust that it's being handled appropriately without overreaching and saying things that we just don't have full view of yet. The ultimate goal is to assess whether from a legal perspective, compliance perspective, whether any personally identifying information has been obtained by a threat actor under, there's a, a bunch of different nuances there on how to assess that. But also um, if it's a health entity, if there's personally identifying information going to health um, and those have their different 
obligations with notifying natural persons, individuals, as well as perhaps regulatory agencies. And we'll also need to assess business partner relationships. There may be reporting protocols under different contracts that a client might have. Yeah, and it is fascinating. You said communication, right? And how you know customers obviously um, and their providers are used to a certain level of transparency. I think before something bad happens, mm -hmm. and you know to be able to uh, continue some kind of conversation, uh, looking at your legal you know requirements as well, right? And and I know that one of the providers that was on the panel actually said that was one of the most difficult things for him was trying to balance the legal response with uh, kind of developing his own tone, right? That his customers were you know, we're used to. And it's, it's mm -hmm. incredible. I think it's bad enough that those things happen, but how, you know, careful that you do have to, you know, you do have to be right. Now, yeah. uh, speaking of words, at the conference, you were pretty clear. I loved it. Uh, because it said, what should we never say? And you immediately said breach, like, <laughs> never, ever, ever use that word. And I've shared that story, actually, with lots of folks, um, you know, because words matter, right. And this idea of they said, well, why not? Like, what's different about incident versus breach kind of, you know, etc. And again, I said, I'm no lawyer, but, you know, clearly, like you said, uh, there's a supposition there that, you know, something happened that maybe it didn't happen that way. And you've got to be clear about that, right? So breach mm -hmm. is one of those words. Why can't we use it? And what other kinds of words should we be careful, you know, with when we're responding to customers? Right, right. And to say, it's easy to remember, don't say breach. Um, it's not that you never use the word breach, but by the time you may need to use that word, you'll have hopefully legal counsel involved and other professionals that can help you assess when and where that word is appropriate. In the outset of an incident, um, using that kind of language with employees that may suspect that something's going on, or it's quite obvious because you're completely shut down, using words like um, there's been an incident, things of that nature that are more benign. As soon as you use words that are more inflammatory, like a threat actor, hacked, breach, things of that nature, um, it's really uh, retweetable, Facebookable, all those kind of things. And losing the messaging around that and having people start guessing about the impact of what you're experiencing can really lead to a distraction to you and your team. So if you can get ahead of that and use more benign language that doesn't immediately fan the flames, you can hold on to that word until you need to use it later, should you need to use it in the case of specific individuals having their personally identifiable information being uh, compromised. So that's that's why I consult with clients right out of the box not to use that word and practice using that both internally within your incident response team so then other verbiage doesn't leak out that you may not have intended it the way that your audience will receive it yeah and and i've got a you know a personal example of that actually happening and it was just with uh, real estate right so you know when you're going through buying and selling of a of a home and the old place that i had actually had a um basically they call it an aerobic septic so it's like a miniature water treatment plant right just like you would have in the in the city and the person that was buying the home asked for me for instructions on how to be able to to run that and uh, so i had been in correspondence with my lawyer and he said oh he said are you a like a plumber or an expert in septic systems i said no he goes then don't like <laughs> like they can find someone you know to do that that they can pay to do that and everything else and and i was kind of like shocked at first and i said oh it totally makes sense because if i you know i'm used to the way that i manage the system but what if that's mm -hmm. incorrect what if there's you know something there right and mm -hmm. so it's obviously not just cyber, um, you know, uh, you know, where we have to worry about how, you know, words are used, but I think it's so important, especially with these, you know, types of threats, right? 
And and I like how you say that you do work with clients up front, um, you know, to make sure that they're kind of aware of how to use language. And um, so I'm assuming as well that you work with clients ahead of time, right? That, you know, you can uh, work with clients before, you know, kind of the, mm -hmm. you know, the incident occurs to to help them prepare for that, right? Absolutely. And I think I'm going to steal that example with the uh, with the septic system, because uh, one of the key features of something going wrong is to either not get specialists involved that have gone through this and gone through the reps and seen it and be able to give you a, 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 a framework game plan, but also to not listen to them once they are engaged. So once you get the plumber in, once you get the legal people in, you get the forensic investigators that handle this type of investigation on a regular basis, um, you'll want question it, sure, certainly any advice that you get, but also you'll want to challenge it if you should have any questions. With respect to that and getting those folks involved, that's part of your incident response planning. So you have your disaster response plans, your incident response plans uh, over that, and that will outline who needs to respond, who's on that team, um, kind of out along the idea with minimizing data so you lessen your impact. You're also going to want to make sure that you have a very thoughtful group of people. Having a team of 30 people on a call uh, when you're under, under a ransom threat, um, that can be problematic. Basically, too many cooks in the kitchen. So you want to outline ahead of time who's going to take on which role, who's the point person. You want information as to if you have uh, cyber coverage, you'll want to know who do I contact, how do I contact them, perhaps even cop keep a copy of that policy with your incident response plan. And one point that I think is really important, make sure that you go old school and have it in paper. So many clients, they may have it, but it's off in a server somewhere and it happens to be a server that's encrypted. So you don't have a phone tree. You don't know who, who to contact for your coverage. Um, that aspect, I keep re revisiting the, the carrier aspect because a lot of times they'll have panel uh, vendors, which will include a legal team, which will include a forensic investigator. And you'll want to take full advantage of the coverage that you have under the policy and you'll want to get them involved right away. If you have to switch midstream or you have to negotiate about getting an off panel vendor, uh, approved once they've already started work. That's just another distraction that you don't need. So all of those key features will be touched on in that incident response plan. You follow that framework and you don't have to memorize it. You don't have to, um, you don't have to practice it like on a monthly basis. I would recommend at very least on an annual basis. So everyone who's involved is familiar. Um, you'll also be able to identify some gaps in your incident response plan or places where you need to update, especially if your business model is rapidly changing, you're expanding, or you have a personnel rollover. There's a lot of things that that will come with doing those practice reps. So between having the plan, practicing it, um, and making sure you stick with the advice that your experts that come to the table during the incident bring bring to you, I think you'd be in a good position. Yeah, and uh, one of the panelists again uh, was in that situation where they did have their incident uh, response plan on a server, which yeah. they couldn't get to. And I, I, I kind of giggled a bit, not because he couldn't get to it, but because the world that I come from, the Office Equipment Channel, um, it has made its living on printed pages, right? And of course, with workflows changing and more things becoming digital, uh, the growth in that space has become much less. Uh, mm -hmm. So they would call that kind of activity a persistent pocket of print which they uh <laughs> they love those <laughs> yeah <laughs> i recommend it put it all the key people have a copy in the trunk of your car <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah really neat and uh obviously with incident you know um 
you know, planning, then they'll get used to that kind of language and stuff that they have to use as well, right? And and I did mention it earlier, but one of the panelists uh, obviously said that he was really concerned about making sure that the essence of who they were as a company to their customers was, you know, maintained. So, you know, how important is that? And can you offer, you know, uh, protection while still offering that traditional great customer service? Like, how do you how do you balance that? Yeah, I think I, I, that's really an important feature for almost every client that I work with. Um, whether it, and that can go into employees too, if it's impacting their HR file, um, which is commonly impacted. Um, having a, a sketch or template communication in your IR plan is a good a good starting point, and that can be modified. Hopefully, you have a counsel in place that is empathetic to that and um, not just um, a box ticking exercise, but really listens to what your needs are. The overarching need for every business is maintaining that trust and that relationship and, and using verbiage that instills confidence that you're handling it. And that as soon as you know that you have an obligation um, to, to let them know that maybe their data has been breached or something like that, that you'll let them know. Um, and that that language is different for every kind of different customer. And, and no one knows the business better than the client knows their business. So you need to work off of a template. As I do with my clients, we'll have a, a template, but we will go back and forth on modifying the language. The only, the only thing that we're really looking for is making sure we don't go out in front of our skis and get ourselves in trouble with making guesses. That's that's where clients sometimes push really hard because they they desperately want to be transparent uh, with the relationships that they've forged, employee or clients, and uh, they might want to share more than they actually know or ahead of where we have things in place, an infrastructure to respond to any inquiries or other issues that might stem from sharing information like that like data being compromised, for instance. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, advice is really good is that, you know, anytime you do that pre-planning and practicing that by the time uh, something does happen, and it seems like in this world, it's it's almost inevitable, right? That, that you're prepared for that, that you've already got a comfort level with, you know, how you're going to approach it, what the, you know, why you have to be uh, careful with certain word choices and what to do to balance that, right? So mm -hmm. it, it sounds to me like don't wait until you've had an incident uh, to contact someone like yourself, like get ahead of it, uh, make sure that you have that counsel ahead of time that you're already have a working partnership, right? Right, right. That would that would really be the best practice. And um, yeah. there are I'm sure it doesn't right happen all the time. <laughs> no, no, because it, it, it seems like we can always put it off. We can put it off. I mean, that's the same kind of thing where you get a call where, well, we were going to patch that that was on tomorrow's agenda or MFA or something like that. Um, Obviously, not. There's always room for improvement, um, but with the IR plan, I think also with the fact that carriers are looking for that, I think that's something that's maybe not avoidable on a long-term basis. You, you need to address it for your own for your own well-being, but also if you're going through a, an insurance process. Yeah, and especially when you have customers that are you know depending on you, right? That it's uh, you know it's really important to make sure that you have those eyes dotted and those. T's crossed ahead of time, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking actually with um, a cybersecurity expert in the space, and he said that what's starting to happen these days is that in the old days, like an MSP would say that they would handle the data for a customer. And then an MSSP, which is a managed security services provider, would handle kind of the cybersecurity element. And he, go, he says it's it's all blurry now, like you almost can't touch the data anymore without also managing, you know, the security, right? So I think, and hopefully it's becoming more top of mind for, you know, providers to, you know, to start thinking more proactively, right? 
Right, right. Yeah. I think in addition to con uh, insurance contracts, just your business partner contracts, more and more of those are more savvy or more verbose and they will cover on, on cyber aspects as well. Making sure you have an incident response plan in place, among other things. Yeah, I love it. And, and in my world, I actually help uh, customers with contracts, uh, language based around uh, billing, right? So th there's always room to update those contracts. That's what I help them with, at least as far from a billing perspective. And then legally, as the world's changing, it would totally make sense to make sure that you're keeping up to date on what those things are as well, right? right. Hey, um, you've got a lot of expertise in this field. You've worked with a lot of customers. And, and I just wonder maybe if you could offer three things up um, for providers uh, to do a better job of preparing for that incident. Okay. Yeah, I th we've touched on a few of those. I think first and foremost is getting that incidents response plan in place yeah. and practicing it. Um, learning on the job <laughs> or during a crisis is is not helpful. Um, it's uh, it's really a distraction. And if you have people that don't don't avail themselves of those practice uh, sessions, they're the ones that come in with questions that everybody already knows the answer to, and it's a bit of a distraction. You have to go back and explain to them why you're doing certain things, like with messaging, for instance. And that goes into my next uh, topic with getting, maybe it's in the incident response plan or it's somewhere separate, your disaster plan, where you have a template for communications and also maybe some key, uh, key contracts where you might, this is a little separate from the communications, it's more of a formal, but you might have reporting obligations in contracts with business partners, make sure that you have those contracts separate. Just like the incident response plan, so many of my clients have these contracts with very, very short turnarounds on reporting of even suspected incidents. They all have different language, so it helps to have counsel look at it. But you, if you have it on a server and you don't have access to that, you have to explain later with that business partner why you didn't tell them earlier. Um, and that could undermine your credibility or, or certainly harm that relationship. Those are probably two of the biggest features. I think the third one that I've talked about a few times already is going back to make sure that you get your carrier involved at the outset. I think that's one of the things besides communications and sharing things that um, maybe we're, we don't know for certainty um, and, and having to step back uh not getting the carrier involved from the outset so you can get vendor uh carrier approved vendors is is probably another sticking point and sidetracks a client and and uh delays their restoration process sometimes um and and for those of us that aren't necessarily in this space what is a carrier like what's the definition of that oh i'm sorry it'd be your it'd be your insurer basically so oh, okay yeah yeah so your insurance carrier when you on the deck page um just a lot of folks don't know where to find this. It'll be on the declarations page, the deck page, or somewhere in there, which is one of the first few pages of your policy. It'll have a notice provision. So it will outline who you contact and how. Sometimes there's a hotline there that you can call. Um, my firm and I, we handle that for, for a number of carriers. That is not that is not also noticed. So besides just calling the hotline to get immediate assistance, like the hotline will go to a law firm and then we'll hit the ground running and get you get you the, the support that you need with forensic investigation and things of that nature. You'll also have to do a formal notice to the carrier that opens the claim and that ensures that all of those services are covered under your policy where applicable. And that's really, uh, you know, good advice. So really that first call is to to get the machine moving. And the second part is to officially kind of open the, you know, the process for the ticket and get it, you mm -hmm. know, get it actually happening. 
Yeah, and, and if I could just add, if you don't mind, I could just add one more course. thing. In case you don't have coverage and you're going bare, um, make sure that you have your vendors in place ahead of time. Researching after something happens uh, is really problematic for a number of reasons that you can imagine. But if you choose not to have a carrier that will have those things in place for you, be sure you, that you have them in place prospectively, maybe in, in keeping with your IR plan. Interesting. So, uh, so some providers would uh, exclude having a carrier. They say, "No, we don't actually, you know, need that." Like, um, it's actually an incident where maybe an insured just chooses not to transfer the risk, meaning that they don't want to transfer the cost to getting a, a cyber policy for some reason, um, yeah. or perhaps they can't get coverage and they have to take on and on all that burden of the cost and expense. So they don't have the supporting apparatus of having a cyber claims professional at the carrier that will suggest uh, legal counsel or a forensic investigation firm, data mining, um, folks that will handle call centers and sending out letters, all of those different professionals that restoration teams, you might need other support there. So all of those kind of things you want to be thinking ahead about and then have those vendors in mind, either perhaps you want to do a retainer agreement um, to make sure that you get in some, some have um, variable capacity. So if you identify someone and you're not on a retainer, it might be more expensive, uh, either a flat rate or on an hourly basis, but they might not have capacity for you either. If it's a large incident like solar winds or something like that, you might be at the back of the line behind other folks that have a retainer with those vendors. Just something to explore, something to have in mind ahead of something happening. Wow. And it's it's just incredible, actually, how deep the rabbit hole can get, right? That, uh, <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that when you get one of these major incidents with one of these larger carriers. It's like there there is a priority lineup, you know, depending on, you know, who's having the most impact, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Hey, listen, we're at that uh, point in the interview, I, and I want to be respectful for your time. I, I call it the impossible question um, because uh -oh. it's <laughs> if you only had one piece of advice, um, you know, for providers looking to get a good cyber, you know, legal counsel, what would that advice be? Uh, my my advice would be to trust the recommendation of a carrier if if you do have coverage uh, with a carrier, not just because you can avail yourself of the coverage, but th those firms are well vetted, they handle high volume, so they've seen the reps. Um, if they do a bad job, they're not going to be on that panel anymore. So you can, you can as, as a rule, trust that counsel. Um, do your own vetting though, check them out. If, if for some reason you get a recommendation or there's some oddity where a carrier recommends a firm, look them up see see how see what their practice area is some diversity i think is helpful for for example i also do um insurance uh coverage and claims monitoring that gives me a lot of background into um, business and how the insurance terms work and things of that nature which i think helps when you're in the midst of an incident response if you look somebody up and they're doing family law that they're doing i don't know they're a sports agent <laughs> they do commercial litigation they might just have that on their website as as uh, something to click on, really. So you want to make sure somebody has the experience in dealing with it. For one, they'll want the relationships with the with the forensic vendors. For instance, we work with these folks on a, a daily basis, obviously, because this is what I do, and that really goes a long way when you have that kind of rapport. So you want to make sure that 
this is their sole, not, perhaps not their sole practice area, but their primary practice area. Um, I think that that's probably the biggest, biggest actually. Yeah, there's two things I get from that. One is it's completely unrelated. And this is one of those things that always happens in my brain when I'm trying to find a way to, you know, kind of mirror that, right? So uh, Steven Spielberg and all of the films that he's done from Jaws to Star Wars to uh, E.T. and everything else, he has always used John Williams for the music, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like when you have somebody that, you know, delivers on a, on a thing like that, then those references are really good. And I'm sure that uh, he said when people were looking for someone to write music for a movie, it's like, oh, you got to use John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. That experience. And it's, yeah, and they, they obviously have a rapport. I think one other point that I didn't mention, but um, even if you take a recommendation for counsel and you're working with them, like let's talk about the communications and you don't feel like they're being as responsive or empathetic to your position with your clients definitely have a candid conversation with that attorney and tell them you have concerns about that. Um, if she or he doesn't respond to that, perhaps if it is a carrier recommendation or maybe there's other people in the firm, you don't want to switch midstream unless absolutely necessary. But if you're not comfortable, it really is a trust relationship between all of these partners and they truly are partners with you, you need to find the right fit. So if there's something that, that's not working for you, you find somebody's too abrasive or they're not being responsive to your client's needs in the way that you think they should be, you might want to explore that further. It may be a reality check for you as the client that that attorney or that vendor is doing the appropriate thing and, and communicating in the appropriate way and perhaps your expectations need to be tempered but it's worth exploring so don't just roll with it if you have if you suspect that perhaps your your approaches aren't aligning yeah and and i love that because just like every other aspect of running a successful business it's that you do have to question right that you have to make sure that you're paying attention to how things are and um but certainly i got to think that with a carrier recommendation that they know uh, with recommendations because it actually makes their lives easier too right it's like oh absolutely you know, yes <laughs> they're a known quantity i know how they're going to work with you know my clients and therefore therefore i can put them out there and um the last thing i would like to do is just uh for those that would like to get in touch with you how would they do that uh you can find me through the firm's webpage, mcdonaldhopkins.com uh, that's probably the best way to find me. Also, I, I can be found on LinkedIn, as is almost anyone on the planet. <laughs> Just look up Blair Dawson, McDonald Hopkins, and you'll find me. Well, that's wonderful. I can't thank you enough for doing the interview today. And for all of our viewers and listeners out there, thank you for tuning into another episode. And remember, until next time, keep learning. And so we come to the end of another exciting episode of Tiger Paw Radio. If you'd like to listen to more great learning content to help you grow your business, please be sure to visit www.tigerpaw.com and click on the Resources tab. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast platforms to be sure you never miss another episode. And until next time, keep learning, keep growing, and keep that inner tiger strong.